0: All right, those of us remaining in here this morning, you can turn in your Bibles if you have one to Matthew chapter 5 verses 38 to 48 It's our passage. That's also printed for you in your bulletin. Um, I'll never forget when I was a junior in high school, uh, it was fall uh, in the few weeks leading up to our homecoming game and this was when juniors and seniors at our school would go out in the darkness of night and cover each other's houses in toilet paper uh, we called it T-Ping, where I'm from. A lot of people call it rapping or rolling. Um, but this was a tradition. It was juniors versus seniors. And it always escalated and got way out of control. Uh, I remember one night a group of, uh, of us juniors targeted a senior named John. And we went to his house. And um, as the toilet paper soared through the air, I remember it started raining. Um, and, which made the toilet paper stick to all the branches of the trees. And after we finished toilet papering his house and these trees, we jumped in our car, we drove off. And we were pretty proud of ourselves because we just got, you know, one of the senior ringleaders, his house. And um, uh, as we turned onto a main road, um, we suddenly saw a car pull up very quickly behind us. We saw the, lights, the headlights right behind us. And we instantly recognized the car. It was John's car. And um, the, the, the man whose house we just... TP'd and he got close enough to the tail of our car that we knew we were not going to lose him and that we needed to surrender. And, you know, you would think that the normal uh, retaliation for getting caught teepeeing someone's house is that they would then teepee our houses in the coming nights. Uh, not so for John. Um, John retaliated in a much worse way. He came, uh, he made us come back to his house ...and clean up every last bit of toilet paper... ...that we just put on his trees, on his house... ...while he stood there and watched us. And um, I distinctly remember the feeling of standing on top... ...of my friend's Ford Explorer in the rain... ...at about 10 or 11 p.m. at night... ...trying to pick wet pieces of toilet paper out out of the tree... ...that maybe just 30 minutes earlier we ourselves had put there. But we attacked. We got caught... They retaliated and and we learned our lesson. But, But this time of year, I can remember leading up to our homecoming game, juniors and seniors, it turned in, we turned into enemies against each other. And the name of the game was how can we get back at them and get them even worse than they got us? It was all about retaliation. We've got to get them back. And it just went back and forth throughout the fall. Here's the question. Should followers of Jesus get back at people who do them wrong? Should we get even with those who've hurt us? That's what our passage is about this morning. We're in the series right now called Following the Way, where we're looking at um, the Sermon on the Mount, which is all about the way of Jesus, where Jesus is teaching, and he's talking about very specific ways and what it looks like to follow him. And what was happening is that the religious leaders during this time, the, the, the Pharisees, they took God's law and they tried to like sort of qualify and do all these mental gymnastics where they could lower the bar, where they could minimize God's law to make it easier to obey so they could look at that list of, of laws and sort of check the box and say, yeah, I'm doing all those things. But Jesus comes and shows us that, that following his way is actually a lot more difficult than they're making it out to be. And it's not just about the external things that we're doing, but it's about the state of our hearts and our internal motives for why we're following him. And these words to us this morning may be some of the most challenging so far. This is Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 38. This is Jesus speaking. He says to us, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and and take your tunic, uh, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The word of the Lord. Father, we do thank you for your word. And this feels weighty, even just reading it. And so we're desperate to hear from you. We need your spirit to speak to us this morning. To help us to know what it means to follow you in this way. And Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, Cheaper by the Dozen, part two, uh, is a movie starring Steve Martin and Eugene Levy that came out in 2005. Uh, it, it, it's, uh, it's a sneaky good movie. Um, cheaper by the Dozen movies, one and two. It chronicles the Baker family. They have 12 children. In the second movie, they go on this family vacation to Lake Winnetka, uh, this fictional lake in Wisconsin for this family getaway. As the kids get older, they want to have one last hurrah as a family. When they get there, the dad, um, played by Steve Martin, realizes that his childhood nemesis, Jimmy Murtaugh, played by Eugene Levy, Um, ...has a lake house uh, uh, on on the same lake and has eight children. And um, Steve Martin's character and Eugene Levy's character... um, ...have been fierce competitors uh, since childhood. And um, all that competition and the desire to outdo one another... ...and get back at one another, it comes back up during this vacation. And what started as like this peaceful family getaway... ...turns into a fierce competition between these two families... ...that's centered around these two dads' unresolved issues with each other... ...and their non-stop retaliation. Um, throughout the movie, they're constantly critiquing each other's parenting styles. Um, they are comparing their wealth and their careers. They're comparing the achievements of their children. And it all culminates with the annual Labor Day Family Cup... ...which is like, it's like Lake Olympics for families to participate in. And it's supposed to be fun, but of course these two families take it way um, too far... ...what you see um, in the family as the movie sort of builds towards this competition... ...is that these two dads are so focused on winning... ...and on getting back at each other that their kids totally lose interest. They get frustrated with what their fathers are doing... ...and it totally ruins these family vacations. And as you watch this movie, you can totally relate to all the parties involved. You can relate to their dad's sense of competition... and, ...and wanting to just get back at each other and beat the other person... And you can, can relate to the kids who just watch their fathers lose control... ...and just get obsessed with winning and with retaliation. Um, you can relate to all of it... ...because we all have the desire to retaliate and to beat our enemies. And there is actually... ...there's right and there's wrong within our desire to retaliate... ...and within our desire to defeat our enemies. There's right in it. God created a world of justice and equity... Uh, ...where good is blessed and rewarded... ...and where evil is condemned and punished. And we have that DNA inside of us. We're made in God's image. So we have this desire for justice and equity. Uh, But when sin enters the story in Genesis 3... ...it messed up our ability to think clearly about that. To be perfectly just and equitable. So we find ourselves in this very messy situation... ...where we have this desire to get justice... Um, we have a desire to get back at, wrong, to, at someone who's wronged us, um, to, to defeat our enemies, but, but, but it's not a pure desire. It's mixed with sinful desires of our own pride and our own desire to win and be right and be vindicated. And it's into that that Jesus tells us his upside-down way for his people. It's a way that stands in stark contrast to the world around us. He says two things this morning. He says, love those who don't deserve it, And love those who have wronged you. Those will be our two points this morning. So first, he says, love those who don't deserve it. Look at the very beginning of this passage. Verse 38, he says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. All right, what is this original principle? That's a direct quote from Old Testament law. It's quoted in Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, different ways... And this was the law of retaliation, and and which in and of itself is a good law. The purpose of this law is to ensure that justice was done rightly, that any time there was a punishment given out for a crime, that it fit that crime, that people weren't being um, overly punished for things that they didn't need to be overly punished for. It prevented an abuse of power or of punishment. It was a good law, but the religious leaders had distorted the law, and they were misapplying it. And when you minimize this law and when you take it out of context, you can actually lose an opportunity to show radical love, which is the very heart of the law. And so what does Jesus say into it? Look at verse 39. We see that formula. You've heard that it was said. He says, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. What does he mean here? These are hard words. He's using hyperbole, which he does throughout this teaching, to stress some key principles in how we relate to each other. Um, There's nuance and there's wisdom in how we would apply all these principles. But let's think through each of these. The, the, The slap that he references here would be sort of a backhanded slap. Uh, ...similar to a modern-day insult. But he says to do what? Don't slap back, turn the other cheek. Don't escalate the situation. De-escalate the situation. If someone insults you, what does he say to do? Absorb it. Absorb it. Love this person by not insulting them back. He says if someone sues you to take your tunic... ...which would be the interior garment... ...give him your cloak also, your exterior garment... So commentators think that th- this is probably envisioning a situation... ...in which a believer is being sued for a debt... ...and, the, and the, so the one suing takes their clothing as a required payment. So maybe that debt is actually owed. He's saying, "Yep, yeah, pay above and beyond. Give more than is what, is what is required of you. What's the heart behind that? Dan Durianne puts it this way in his commentary. He says, Jesus is not commanding us to give away everything... Until we are left cold and naked. He is commanding us not to devote ourselves to defending our honor and avenging all affronts. This is the heart behind what he's saying here. He's saying, don't devote yourself to defending your honor at all costs. Don't make it all about defending your name and defending your honor. This is another way of not getting even, of of where we just, we stop worrying about our honor. We stop worrying about our reputation, because God knows who we are, and he alone is the judge. So he's saying, love this person who is in some way dishonoring you or damaging your reputation by even giving them more than what they've asked for. It's upside down. Then he says, if someone asks you to go one mile, go two miles. What's he referring to? There was a Roman law that would allow um, the Roman soldiers uh, to um, ask citizens in territories that they're occupying to, to carry their military equipment up to about like a thousand paces. And Jesus says, if you're asked to do something like that, don't just go one mile, go two. He's saying when someone forces you to unjustly do something, do it and even go above and beyond. Love this person by giving more than what is required. And then the last thing he says is about giving to one who begs or one who wants to borrow something from you. and You know, it's easy to make assumptions about um, why someone is begging or why someone finds himself in such dire need. And, and we can sort of tell a story in ourselves about why that person is not deserving of it. And so therefore we've justified in our mind why we're not going to give to whatever, whatever it may be. And of course we have to be wise in how we give and all those qualifications. Um. But rather than writing off the one who comes with a need, Jesus says, Love them by giving generously. What is Jesus saying to us? Love for others, especially those who may not deserve it, is the heart behind every single one of these specific points of application that he's making. And commentators suggest that he's speaking. Um, specifically on an individual level, not on a society-wide level. Of course, governments and authorities have to enact justice in society all the time. Doriani puts it this way. He says, society needs justice, but we do not need to exact justice with our own hand. He says, as individuals, we can entrust justice to God and the state, and we can act in mercy. Jesus is saying let your love for others be so radical that you are willing to sacrifice your honor your reputation your time your effort your money for the sake of those who don't deserve it what does this mean for us it's important to remember that the principle is love for others so as we think about how this might apply, there, there, are places, there are times where this maybe doesn't apply. Maybe it's helpful to even name just one of those. This would be like a situation of abuse. In a situation of abuse, um, love for the abuser, if we're talking about loving those um, who don't deserve it, love for the abuser does not mean to let them continue abusing you. So this would, that would not be a situation that this applies to. What, what it, um, ...the loving thing to do is to get to a place of safety... ...and to not let that abuser continue to abuse you... ...to get authority involved, to seek help, to seek refuge. Here's how Doriani summarizes this. He says, do not resist, therefore, means that we do not retaliate... ...physically or legally when an evil person harms us personally. He says, but we do resist evildoers who tempt us to sin... He says, we resist oppressors who ravage the helpless. If possible, he says, we show personal kindness to evildoers. We do not make self-defense our first goal. So there are certainly qualifiers, but the thrust behind this is to love those who don't deserve it. And, and just, this just stands in such stark contrast to the world around us. Uh, think about baseball, for example... Um, I don't know a lot about baseball, but I've talked about it the past two weeks in a row. Still don't know a lot about it. But when a pitcher throws a ball and it grazes the batter, it is commonplace for when the pitcher of the other team gets up there in, in, the, in the other part of the inning uh, for that pitcher to then throw a ball and graze one of their batters. That's just sort of what you do. If, you're, if you graze one of our batters, we're going to graze one of your banners. Think about big national political debates, which are ramping up. If, if, if a politician calls out another politician publicly, what, what do you do? The other politician fights back publicly. And it's just kind of back and forth. That's just how our world works. And, and Jesus is saying, fight every impulse you have to retaliate. A few years ago, a national newspaper published results of a study that was done on retaliation. ...not by a Christian organization, not a Christian newspaper, very secular. But listen how this article begins. It says, quote, a colleague steals your idea and then undermines you in front of the boss. It's human nature to want revenge. But will getting even make you feel better in the long run? So they did a study to find out. They said people are motivated to seek revenge to harm someone who has harmed them... ...when they feel attacked, mistreated, or socially rejected... It says, getting an eye for an eye, Old Testament style... ...is thought to bring a sense of catharsis and closure. But a growing body of research suggests it may have the opposite effect. Quote, while most of us won't engage in the type of vengeful displays... ...that grab headlines or warrant prison time... ...our everyday lives include small acts of retaliation... ...such as gossiping about a neighbor who snubbed you... ...lashing out on Yelp after poor customer service... ...or engaging in endless Twitter tit-for-tat typified by certain elected officials. And they go on to say that what they found in this study is that retaliating feels really good in the short term. The participants of this study felt immediately better when they retaliated against someone who did them wrong. But then they circled back with these same participants in this study after an extended period of time... ...and they actually felt worse than they did before they sought the revenge... And here's how the article ends. It says, Revenge may make you feel better for a moment, but making the effort to repair a valuable relationship can pay bigger dividends over a lifetime. Just secular research from the study that was done. But we've all felt that before. Um, trying to get even with someone who maybe said something poorly about us, so we say something about them, or, or just tearing into a customer service rep over, over the phone for... ...charging us the wrong price... ...sending us the wrong product... Wh- ...whatever it may be. Um, we don't, we, it, maybe there's some immediate relief when we do that... ...but we don't feel better in the long run. Instead, it, there, it just creates this, this kind of cloud of like yucky shame... ...that just hangs over us. Um, Jesus is calling us to a different and better way than retaliation. It's the way of turning the other cheek... ...of trusting in God's justice... ...of, of finding ways to maintain and restore a relationship... Um, generous love towards those who don't deserve it is the way of God. Because that's precisely the way that he's loved people like us who don't deserve it. That's the first point. Love those who don't deserve it. But he goes one click deeper and tells us, secondly, to love those who've wronged you. Look at verse 43. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. All right, what was this original principle that he was quoting here? Nowhere in the Bible does it say to love your enemy and to, or to love your neighbor and to hate your enemy. This is a misinterpretation. It's really a misquote of the Old Testament law to love your neighbor, which is all over the place. And again, um, if you think about that, if we get a pass to hate our enemies, then suddenly the idea of loving our neighbor becomes so much easier, right? Because your circle can just keep getting smaller and smaller until you're only in relationship with people who are really easy to love. Um, people who agree with you. People who have the same views as you. People who don't challenge you. People who, um, who don't try your patience to be in relationship with them. We can just write everyone off as being our enemies and say, oh, I, those are my enemies. It's okay to hate my enemies. I can love those who love me. But, but what does Jesus say into that impulse that we all have? Verse 44 he says, But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. Sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. What does he mean? So he just said love those who don't deserve it. But he goes even deeper here... ...pushes harder against us and says, love those who have actively wronged you. Those who've done harm to you. Rather than hating your enemies, love them and pray for them. And what is he ground it in? He grounds it in our family DNA. He says, this is what it's like in the family of God. Your sons and daughters of your father, this is how your father treats his enemies. He makes the sun rise on what? On the evil and the good. He sends rain on who? ...on the just and the unjust. He's saying, this is how you are to be like your father. And anything else, simply loving those who love you... ...that's what the rest of the world does. He says, tax collectors do that, Gentiles do that. Those would have been categories of people... ...that these religious leaders despised. And he's saying, that's how they can love that way. You're called to something bigger. In, in the family of God, we're called to go above and beyond... ...and even love our enemies... What does that mean for us? Maybe it begins by just thinking about someone who's wronged you. Maybe it's a big way someone's wronged you in your lifetime. Maybe it's small ways. Someone at school has wronged you. On your team that you play sports on. At work. In your neighborhood. In your family. Friend group. And at a minimum... It means to not hate that person. It's pushing against that feeling of like, when someone comes to mind, you're just like, oh, I can't stand that person. It starts by pushing against that impulse. And you, know, you may be able to, to fake it on the outside and smile and nod when you see them. Meanwhile, you're seething on the inside. I'll never forget uh, hearing the term anger fantasy in a podcast. And the person speaking talked about having Anger fantasies about those who, are wrong, who had wronged him. An anger fantasy is simply um, in your mind, in the quiet of your own mind, just going off on someone who has wronged you. It's, it's envisioning yourself just unloading on them and defending yourself and making a case for why you're in the right and they're in the wrong. And just if every, everyone could know why you're right and they're wrong, then the world would be a better place. And, and meanwhile, you're not saying any of this out loud. It's all happening in your mind. Maybe while you're, you know, you're out walking or mowing the grass or whatever. It is anger fantasies happening all up here. To follow the way of Jesus is to hold these anger fantasies before the Lord, recognizing that this is not the way of love. To cherish these thoughts, to entertain these thoughts, this is not the way of Jesus. And to ask for forgiveness for harboring those things. To ask for healing from the Lord in those, because clearly there's pain there. If these things are coming to mind, clearly there's pain there. Ask for healing from God in those ways in which you have been wounded. Um, To even come to a place where you can trust God to deal with it. But it's a refusal to take matters into your own hands. A refusal to even entertain these internal thoughts. Um, It means not hating, and instead it means actively finding ways to love those who've hurt you. I have a friend who keeps a note card of people who have wronged him or with whom there's been some kind of relational damage. And you would think, oh, like, so he can keep score? Is this like his hit list of people? No, it's not a hit list. He does it so he can pray for them. Note card, writing the names out of people that, that, that have got, he's gotten sideways with, that have wronged him, so he can pray for them. And he said... Um, When he prays for these people, it's amazing what God does to his own heart towards these people, how God softens him. And he says, you know, instead of, you know, when you see him in the other aisle of the grocery store, instead of trying to dodge them, you're actually kind of glad to see him because your heart has changed where you actually want blessing on them, you want favor for them. Because you can't really fake it in prayer to earnestly pray for someone, that's a real act of love. ...where God's not just going to hear your prayer for that person... ...but God's going to do something in your own heart... ...as you pray for that person. It's so hard to love our enemies. Everything, fight against it. But it's so good... ...and it's so beautiful to do so. Years ago, it was maybe 10 to 15 years ago now... um, ...this was a big national story, international story... ...a gunman broke into the the Amish schoolhouse... ...the one-room Amish schoolhouse in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and um, opened fire on the children in the schoolroom and um, ended up killing five children that day, injuring others, um, and ultimately he, the, the gunman turned the gun on himself and, and ended his own life that day. Um, his name was Charlie Roberts, and um, a lot uh, the story got a lot of coverage for multiple reasons. One of the reasons was the gunman's mother, uh, her name is Terry. You can imagine just the... the unfathomable situation it would be to be a mother of the gunman in a situation like that. All these just hard, conflicting trauma to to deal with. Um, She said that they held a a private funeral for Charlie. um, But at this private family funeral at this graveside, it was family only, um, but about 40 um, of the Amish family members um, families and friends of those school children who had been killed heard about this, his funeral, and they showed up to, to this funeral um, to express condolences to, to the parents of this gunman. It's hard to talk about this. I mean, I'm thinking about you know, our friends in Nashville at the Covenant School just this past, past spring where there, there were similar situations where um, friends and family of, of children who were lost w- went to the funeral of, of the gunman in Nashville um, but this mother, Terry, um, she said that when the families of these victims surrounded the, the family at the funeral, she said love emanated from them. And um, th- they extended this love and this forgiveness uh, to the family of the gunmen. But it, it didn't stop there. They actually began to build friendship with one another. Um, it turns out that, that Terry, again, the mother of the gunmen and the families of the victims got so close that Terry actually spends time weekly with one of the survivors of the shooting... who suffered a severe brain injury. Terry meets with her weekly to care for her by bathing her, by reading to her. Um, And and this relationship, it began um, by the families of the victims... moving towards Terry and her husband and initiating this love and this forgiveness. Um, This is unspeakably costly love above and beyond love that has been extended by these Amish families in the face of just horrific, horrific tragedy. Um, But this is a picture of loving our enemies. And it's a beautiful picture. And we have actually an even more beautiful picture of loving our enemies in Jesus himself. Um, You notice at the very end of our passage it says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. What are we to do with that? Let's ask it this way, if perfection is the calling, we're thinking about that verse in the context of the verses before it, if perfection is the calling, um, what does the perfect love of God look like, if that's what we're called to? We read this in our confession of sin, our assurance this morning, Isaiah 53, 7, it's talking about Jesus, this is forward looking, talking about Jesus, it says, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus, who was unjustly persecuted, unfairly persecuted, did not open his mouth to defend himself. Later in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 26, Jesus is on trial. He's before the high priest. Uh, this is uh, Matthew 26, verse 62. You could even look this up later. The high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What what is it that these men testify against you? So Jesus is on trial, unjustly accused, falsely accused. And he, he has his time, his opportunity. Speak now and get out of this. This could have a different end. Set the record straight. You have the mic. Verse 63, but Jesus remained silent unjust persecution and he's silent he doesn't defend himself and where did it lead we know where it led it led to his death he was spit on and beat and mocked and killed and yet he remained silent and even as he was praying he actually does speak as he was dying he prays God forgive them they don't even know what they're doing not retaliating Loving his enemies. Um, Jesus doesn't teach these things to us. He doesn't ask us to love people who don't deserve it. He doesn't ask us to love those who've wronged us, then sort of like stand off from afar in the safety of where he's at and just sort of like evaluate the job that we're doing and like see if we're living up to the standard. Um, He came first and showed us how to love like this. He knows that feeling of being severely misunderstood. ...of being misrepresented, of being slandered... ...of having someone say untrue things that are damaging and hurtful... ...and have real consequences to you. He knows what it's like to be wronged. That was his life on earth and it led to his death. And he did that for us. He experienced those things for us. Because ultimately, because of our sin... ...we were the ones who mistreated him. Who misunderstood him. And our sin is proof of that, that we wanted nothing to do with God. We ran the other direction, away from God. We were the enemies of God. We were the people who didn't deserve His love. We were the people who had wronged Him. Yet He loved us so much, He died for us. Um, Were it not for Jesus loving His enemies, none of us would be in His kingdom with Him. And the same power that raised Jesus from the dead... That same spirit that raised him from the dead is a spirit that he gives to us when we believe in him and empowers us to love others, empowers us to love those in our lives who don't deserve it, empowers us to love those in our lives who have wronged us. Won't you fall before him today? Find the forgiveness in him today for those ways in which we we don't love but actually hate and find the power in him to begin... to love love others today. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for the good news of Your love. It, It is a love that is so undeserving. We were Your enemies. We were Your enemies, but You're the God who loves His enemies and comes to us in our sin while we were still sinners and died for us out of love. Oh, may we taste this this morning and may we feel the forgiveness purchased for the ways in which we don't love well. And would you make us into a people that loves those who don't deserve it and loves those who've wronged us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.